One of the books that many of our young people have read is a book called Lord of the Flies by Goldie. And I want to tie this into our scripture lesson today. Over 4,650,000 copies of this book have been printed. This book deals with the terrifying plight of man. It's really a terrible book to read. It's terrifying. It will frighten you to read it. But I highly recommend that you read it, especially if you are one of those people who believe in the innate goodness of man and that he is not basically sinful and in need of a revolution in his heart. The story, briefly, is this. William Golding tells us about a, a group of choir boys who, as a result of an atomic war, land upon an island out in the Pacific. The oldest in the group is only 12 years of age. At first, they have crosses on their robes, and then they realize that they have to divide up into some kind of society in order to survive because there are no grown-ups around, no adults. It's a deserted island. And so they try to organize along social lines. They vote for a chief, like we're voting today. You go out in the parking lot and you see stickers for McGovernor, stickers for Mr. Nixon, and, and so on. They vote for a chief to be their leader. Well, one of the more likable of the youth is a young boy by the name of Ralph. He's sort of the everyman figure, and he gets elected. And then there is Jack, who is sort of an incarnation of the baser instincts in man, and he is angry and jealous because he did not get elected. They decide that in order to get off of this island and to get out of their trap, they need to attract some ship that might be going by. And so a detail is sent to the top of the mountain, and this is Golding's way of demonstrating some reaching out after God, this high figure like Moses going up into the mountain. And so they go up on top of this mountain and they build a beacon fire which is supposed to attract a ship and maybe they can be rescued from the island. And Jack is in charge of keeping this fire fueled. But Jack begins to talk with the boys. They've been eating the fruits from the trees, bananas or whatever fruit they were eating. And then one day they hear a pig squeal and go through the bushes. And so Jack thinks it would be nice to have a little ham or bacon or uh, to get away from the fruit diet. And so they leave the beacon fire and they go chasing after a pig. And they sharpen a stick at both ends and they make a spear of it. And their first attempt is not successful, but finally they are able to kill a pig. And when they kill this pig, they're very proud of themselves and they roast the pig and they cut the pig's head off and they stick it up on a stick. But then Ralph comes back, the leader, and he says, why did you leave the fire? It's gone out and there was a ship out there and you missed the ship. If the fire had been blazing and the smoke had been going up, maybe we would have been rescued. But do you see what you've done? But Jack and his hunters are now having the excitement of bloodlust and they have killed a pig. And then the next time that Ralph sees them, he can't hardly recognize them because they have paint smeared over their faces. The hunters do. These are their masks. They have killed a pig, 
and they put upon them paint, and they're naked, and they are the hunters. They begin to neglect the fire, and then they begin to quarrel. One day a parachutist comes down upon the island, and they're all afraid. They wonder what this strange thing is that's come down. They couldn't see it clearly, just this white thing coming down. And it landed on top of the mountain. So they said, let's organize a detail and let's go. And Jack says, I'll go with my hunters. I'm not afraid of anything. But Jack is really afraid. Because Jack has been killing pigs and Channing killed the pig, killed the pig, spill his blood. And this has infected him. And his little hunters are infected the same way. He thinks about that thing on the mountain and maybe it will be stronger than he is. And so he's really afraid to go up there and on the way they see another pig so Jack kills that pig and they roast it and they put his head also upon the stake. And then they begin to think maybe that ghost up on the mountain there that they couldn't kill with a stake so they'll leave some pig behind to placate it. And then finally, wearing this mask, this paint upon their face, Ralph notices that they're wearing these masks, they're hiding because they are now being infected with evil. And then they begin to quarrel. And Simon, who is a sensitive spiritual soul, much like Jeremiah, Simon creeps up to the top of the mountain to see what it really is up there. He's not afraid. But they all think Simon's a little crazy, just like they thought Jeremiah was crazy. And Simon goes to the top of the mountain and he looks. And he sees that it's a parachutist. And he comes back down the mountain with what he thinks is good news. And Ralph and his hunters are doing a chant around a pig that they had just killed. They're chanting away with their campfire and the pig's head up on a stake. And they see the bushes rustle. And it's Simon. And so they start getting into their war dance like savages. And they close in upon this rustling bush. And little Simon comes out. And they see that it's Simon. But they are so excited with the lust of killing that they stab him to death. And then the little boys make a discovery. That it's more fun to kill people than pigs. And so they start hunting each other and killing each other. Until finally... To drive out one another, Jack sets the whole island on fire and it is burned up and the fire is sweeping all over the island. And then a destroyer comes, a British destroyer, and a naval officer comes ashore and he looks down at this pitiful sight of 12-year-old Ralph sobbing because the whole island is burned and the British officer says, couldn't you fellows have made a better show of it than this? What happened? Then he tells them how society broke down. Now this is the story of how it broke down. And this is why the judgment of God is so severe that Jeremiah denounces here. They had forsaken what was highest and they started worshiping. First each other in a leader and then after this when that didn't work they started worshiping a pig's head with the flies swarming around it, the Lord of the flies, that's where the word Beelzebub comes from that we read in our New Testament. Now the reason that Jeremiah denounces the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem is that they have degraded the worship of Almighty God. 
they have put in idols and started worshiping idols. This is always the tendency. It's not to say to people, don't worship God, but it's to add something else. And so Jeremiah denounces it. And Jeremiah rapidly became an unpopular prophet because of his denunciation. Now in Golding's book, there is no hope. No hope here, no grace here. But in the scriptures and in Jeremiah's promise, there is hope. And this is how that hope comes about. Jeremiah, as you know, was sensitive. God had spoken to him. He was reluctant. He did not wish to go, this prophet, and preach this melancholy message that he had to speak to the people. But he was commanded, and God had told him that before he was ever born, that he had a commission. And that commission was to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. The true proclaimer of the word of God is not narrow-minded when he insists that salvation is only in God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. But he is being faithful to the message of Scripture. Well, Jeremiah, of course, becomes unpopular. He speaks to the people and he says, my people speaking for God, he says to the people, my people have, for, have committed two evils. Me, the fountain of living waters, they have forsaken. And they have hewn out for themselves cisterns which are cracked and broken that hold no water. This is what God Almighty says to this bankrupt planet Earth. You have hewn out your broken cisterns, your worship of sex, your worship of pleasure, your worship of man, your worship of science, your linguistic analysis who thinks because you can explain a bunch of words that you have done away with the truth of God. And the message which God brings is a message of judgment, but it has a bright lining to it of hope. There is light at the end of that tunnel. Jeremiah had to say that the priests and the prophets were prophesying falsely. And this is so true today. You can get this message from William Golding, but you have a hard time getting it from the pulpit. There are people who have gone through and cut out the Bible. They do not want it that way. But they want people who will bring to them a new morality which will allow them to embrace any sin they want. I think I've told you there is no new morality for the simple reason there is no new sin. Till you get a new sin, you can't have a new morality. It's old. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their bidding, and my people love it so. But what will ye do when the end comes? What will you do, little planet Earth? What will you do? When the big rockets go into orbit and they start their ways toward you, what will you do then? And then you know what the people did? They made a fundamental error. They assumed that God had to bless them. This is a very perilous thing. You can say, I am one of those who believe in the authority of Scripture and in the deity of Christ, therefore God has got to bless me. Oh, no. You will not be saved for pious phrases. These people, these people tried to blame their sins upon God. What? Steal, murder, commit adultery, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods, and then come and stand before me in this house and say, we are delivered in order to do all these abominations. 
I'm predestined to do this. In this house that is called by my, is this house that is called by my name become a den of robbers in your estimation? Jeremiah denounces this in the name of God. There is no universal salvation in the book of Jeremiah. But there is a separation here, a judgment that takes place that always means separating things. He brings to them a message of judgment. The people thought that God somehow had to bless them. We think that somehow God has got to bless America. Oh, no. America with its sins can come under the judgment of the Almighty just as surely as Judah came. And you as an individual can come under the judgment of the Almighty too. And so this is why Jeremiah's message is, is far more relevant and meaningful than just what Golding has said to us here. Well, Jeremiah was criticized sharply by his fellow priests in the village of Anathoth. He was 25 years of age at that time and just a young preacher. There came a word to him from the Lord, and you know what the Lord said? If thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, how canst thou contend with the horses? In other words, Jeremiah, you've been worked on by amateurs up till now, but wait till the pros get a hold of you. If you think it's been tough in Anathoth, wait till you get into Jerusalem with this message. So he came into Jerusalem with the message, and his message had to be one of denunciation against the prophets. You remember last week I told you how he broke a vessel, illustrating that there were people who had become brittle. You know, there are two kinds of clay. We talked about the clay that could be remade, that soft, moist clay that can be reshaped and made again. But once it's put into the oven and it's fired and it's glazed, then it becomes brittle and it shall be broken then. And that's the way the people of Judah had become brittle and breakable. And so Jeremiah broke that great vase and said, this is what God will do to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. This is what he is bringing against you for your sin. And then there begin to come those great words of hope, ye shall seek me and find me when you shall search with, for me with all your heart. And then I will make again a new covenant the promises that God brings. Well, let's see the reaction. The reaction of the princes to the message. Jeremiah got a message from God. Chapter 36 is a very important passage of Scripture for those who want to learn how the Bible was written. God revealed to his servant Jeremiah some words. Jeremiah spoke them to Baruch, a scribe, and the scribe wrote them down. Jeremiah was hindered and kept back from going into the temple to preach. So he told his secretary, his amanuensis, Baruch, he said, you take this down to the temple. In December there's a big feast day and there'll be a great crowd of people there and you read it to them. And so Jeremiah went down, uh, Baruch went down with Jeremiah's words, which were the words of God through his prophet Jeremiah. And these words were read in the temple precincts. And when this judgment was predicted that the Babylonians would come against them and conquer them, there were people who heard it and they were frightened by it. He was really undermining the morale of the people, they thought, so they ran away quickly and told the princes. And the princes sent for Baruch and they said to Baruch, you come and read this message to us. And he read it to them and they trembled and were afraid, but none of them tore their garments. None of them repented. 
They said, where did you get these words? And he said, I got them from Jeremiah. He dictated them to me one by one and I wrote them down. Then these people, these princes, went to the king. They asked that Jeremiah and Baruch be hidden. And then they went to the king whose name is Jehoiakim. And they read these words in his king. He had one of his servants, Jehu, die to read these words in his presence. And do you know what the king did? As three or four columns were read, the king took his small knife and he cut it in two and he threw it into the fire and burned it. When more of Jeremiah's prophecy was read denouncing the sins of his country, he tore that in two and he threw it in the fire. There is a destructive attitude toward the scriptures that goes through and cuts out and destroys it. There is a filter in the mind of many people that will not listen to the word of God, especially if it has to do with judgment and personal accountability. Now, we live in a land where we have all of these translations of Scripture that we can study and read. But there are places where the Bible is very precious and where it is not uh, in circulation widely. Last fall, I went up one time to, for a visit with Dr. Billy Graham, and, and we were talking about some information that had come to him from China, from some high-level sources that with whom he had been in conversation. They told of how Christians in China, where no Bibles are printed, would meet together in little secret meetings. And some of them would have portions of the Scripture memorized. And so they would say to one group, all right, you are Philippians, and you have memorized all of Philippians, give us Philippians. And so they would give Philippians. Someone else, they would say, you're Ephesians, and they would give Ephesians. Someone else, you're the prophet Jeremiah. And so they would give some from Jeremiah. They'd had to commit the memory, the word of God, because they had no printed scriptures in circulation. But the word of God is available to us. What will we do? Will we do as this king did? And cut it in pieces and throw it away from us because we do not like its message of judgment which speaks to us? Or will we take it into our hearts? This is the only rescue that can come to this planet is when we are willing to take the word of God and the message of both judgment and salvation that are given to us there and apply it to our own minds and hearts. I think I have told the story of when I was in India a couple of years ago. They used to tell about a tribesman who came out of the jungles. Uh, he was a wild man and he had not been around any civilized people to amount to anything and he came into a, a missionary compound and uh, there was a, a, a broken piece of a mirror there that someone had tossed aside and he, he picked it up and he looked at himself and he saw how wild he looked and he threw it away. And then he told the missionary, he said, no wonder someone threw that away. You ought to see that horrible thing that's in there. He didn't realize he was looking at himself. And it's the same way often with the word of God. Don't read me that. Read me something about the Sermon on the Mount. Read me the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Read me the 14th chapter of John. Someone might die. But don't read me about judgment. Don't tell me about my sins. Don't read me the Ten Commandments. Don't read me about my responsibilities to my neighbors. Don't read me that I must go into all the world and preach the gospel. Don't read me that I must show love toward my family and toward all people. Well, this was the attitude of Jehoiakim. 
But it shows us also how God deals with this attitude. Jehoiakim could not turn away the message which God's servant had given, and neither can we. Jeremiah got another scroll and he dictated again the words and even more. And he told of how judgment would fall upon Jehoiakim and how his dead body would be carried out like the carcass of a horse or a dog and left on a dung heap. And this is what happened to Jehoiakim. And then, interestingly enough, in a, a following chapter, we are told about another king whose name is Zedekiah. <coughs> Zedekiah came to the throne after Jehoiakim. And Zedekiah also was a weak, vacillating person. He had a sort of superstitious fear of these men of God, but no depth, no commitment. He was lulled and pushed back and forth by his own princes. And he permitted the princes who spoke against Jeremiah to throw Jeremiah into a pit. And there was a black man. It's interesting to me that every place in Scripture where a black man appears, it's always in a favorable light. It's always in a favorable light. Here is a black man. He hears that Jeremiah has been thrown down into a deep well and is sunk up into the mire up to his armpits and that he is dying. He is a valuable servant of the king. His name is Ebed-Melech, which means servant of Melech. And the king has this man come before him and ask for permission to go and draw Jeremiah out of that pit. For this man, the word of God was precious, and he wanted that preacher to preach to him again. And Ebed-Melech, Ebed the black man, comes to this well, and he looks down into this, this pit, and he brings with him others. And an interesting little note that must have been a masterpiece of reporting by some eyewitness who saw it, tells how Ebed-Melech, this black man, had brought with him some old clothes, some old cast-off garments, some old pieces of shoe material. And he let these down on the rope, down to Jeremiah, and he said to Jeremiah, put these under your armpits so that the ropes won't cut you when I pull you up. You know, when you've suffered, and I expect that black man had been mistreated, when you've suffered, you... You learn sometimes to sympathize with others. And so the black man takes these cast-off things, these little bits of things that others couldn't use that meant so much to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was drawn up out of that pit. Drawn up out of that pit. The king will not listen, but his black servant listened. His black servant listened because he knew that God's message of judgment is also a message of love. For what he speaks to us is with a desire to make us what we ought to be, to change us into what we should be. Zedekiah had an interesting prophecy against him. Zedekiah was told that he would go into the land of captivity, but he would not see it. And this Zedekiah who refused the message of God had his own children brought in his presence by the Babylonians when they conquered it, and they were his own children were slaughtered in his presence. And his eyes were put out so that he would have that in his memory. And Zedekiah was taken into captivity in that way. He refused. He refused to believe the word from God. When God speaks, God demands that he be taken seriously. 
He demands that he be taken seriously. But bless God, there is that word which Jeremiah also speaks, which gives promise of the Messiah coming. I will make them a new covenant. I will put my law in their inward parts and on their heart I will write it. I will forgive their guilt and their sin I will remember no more. Someone faulted me the other day for preaching about sin and salvation. I'm very grateful for that criticism. I'm going to be guilty of it every Sunday. <laughs> uh, sin and salvation, that is the message of Scripture and it's the message of your own life because there must be constantly a correction made in our lives. Every day is the story of the same thing that there must be corrections made with us. And this is the message of this Bible because it's our nature that is being overcome as the work of the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, writing this law within us. And it is a message that speaks to us of love. I remember hearing Dr. Oswald Hoffman tell of a wonderful man of God in Detroit, Michigan, Dr. Conrad, who had been terribly maligned by a member of his congregation. And Dr. Conrad moved to another city. And this woman who had done him so much harm by a vicious, slanderous tongue because the man had been faithful to God's word wrote a long letter later asking his forgiveness for what she had done and saying that she had no peace in her heart because of it. She got a telegram back from Dr. Conrad. You know what the telegram had on it? Only three words. Forgiven, forgotten, forever. Forgiven, forgotten, forever. For those who turn to God for his love as it is revealed to us in Jesus Christ and sincerely desire that new heart, which is what the message of repentance is, a new mind, God brings to us forgiveness, sins that are forgotten and drowned in the depths of the sea to remember them against us no more and forever, eternity with him. The message of Jeremiah is relevant today and meaningful to us all because he speaks to us not only the judgment against our rebellion against God when we erect our idols, and go into our immorality, but he brings to us forgiveness and love and the promise of a new heart. Let us stand in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for Jeremiah. We thank you for his faithfulness to you. We thank you for the fact that his failure, as far as the men of his day were concerned, was eternities beyond the successes of others who were there. We therefore pray that thou wilt deliver us from the desire to be popular, to the road of utter faithfulness to you, Faithful, O oh God, to the gospel. 
to the very end of our days. For those of us who have sinned against you, we do pray that thou wilt help us to know that with you there is forgiveness. And Lord God, we pray that with that blessed responsibility of forgiveness, which is ours, may come a desire upon our part to walk in a newness of life, in a new tomorrow that will show the love of Jesus Christ. Make us to know that that message is open and available to us all and help us to yield to his lordship and control. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.